Listener supported. WNYC Studios. I was American in France who didn't speak French. I was a baker in New York who had never baked before. I was a business owner in Union Square who had never run a business before. There's a lot about being coming to it sideways that I think led to what became the sum of City Bakery. How do you make community? And what does it mean to feed and nourish people? Pastry chef Maury Rubin has been doing exactly that here in New York at City Bakery for more than 20 years. And his path took a somewhat unexpected turn when he made the move from producing sports television to making baked goods and hot chocolate. Today, he joins me to talk about leaving home to create something of his own. And like baking itself, the evidence of your work is what's left behind. I'm great. I see you have a coffee. You know what's funny? I brought you a donut. I'll take a donut. <laughs> Hi. So I was passing this place and there were these donuts. They were really pretty. And I wanted to see if they tasted as good as they looked. (laughs) And you had to buy a pair of them. You couldn't just have one. You had to buy the pair. It's called Donut Tyranny. And so I said, well, I'll eat one and I'll save the other one for who else? For Maury. You liked or didn't like? And I'm not going to tell. Okay. I think you should have your own okay. donut experience. I think donuts are really hit or miss. And how come? Defined by sugar. Mm-hmm. It's like speeding. You know, it's like it's just easy to go too fast. Ah. It's just to like you just so quickly, just a little bit too much, and you're done. I mean, there's the dough. Um, I, I have a favorite donut in New York. I don't know if I'm ready to name names. No, um, you don't have to name names, yeah. but you have a favorite donut. How that, come it's your favorite donut? Well, because the the dough, the donut itself, the dough is so good. It's so well made. And it is incredibly consistent. The quality of it for what it tastes like, for how it pleases you, that's one thing. The ability for it to be that way all the time, that's the mark. So my favorite donut in it, I love it in every sense. I think it's an accomplished piece of work. Yeah, we are talking about donuts. Okay, I just wanted to make <laughs> sure. And consistent, meaning that you can buy it any day of the year, and it, it delivers the same... Let's, let's go beyond day. Okay. I mean, seriously, it's, yeah. it, it's a mark of time, it, like year after, you know. Think of it like primal pleasures, and you go into... You have a favorite drink in a bar or you have a favorite slice of pizza or whatever, you know, and you haven't been in there for a while. Like, what's the hope? The hope is you're, you're going to go in there and it's going to be exactly what you remember and you love. So with this particular donut, it's been years and years and years. And I don't think that gets its due. But uh, if you're looking at it a little bit clinically – the mark of time and consistency. It's like the railroad track. It's like the it's the it's the road in the middle of what what's the whole thing mean? What what's the whole thing about? It's like soul food restaurants that can't fry chicken. 
But if you but, can't fry chicken, right. you should not. You shouldn't be in right. that business. Yeah. Okay. Well, we've been talking about it all this time. <laughs> put your hand in there. Wait. No, just put no, your just... hand in. So first, first observations. I know this donut. <laughs> <laughs> Even if you know that donut, will you will you eat a bite of it anyway? Damn right. Okay. <laughs> Why would I not? I'm predisposed to enjoying this donut, I have to say. You are? I like this donut. It's the uh, the contrary savory minute. I like it a lot. When you're going the opposite direction, like a savory flavor and something that's primordially sweet, that can go off the rails kind of easily, mm-hmm. too. This is I, I like this. It's very well done. I actually think, and this is hard to get me to say, there's a little too much sugar on it. Thank you. I agree. And I feel like they they put the sugar on because they've read too many of those articles where they know what sugar does to the brain and that we are inclined to like sweet things. But as with many things, what's underneath the sugar? And how do we get to what is below the thing that I'm obviously supposed to like and that I, I am inclined to like and that my brain is wired to like. And so while it was fun to to buy it and to be forced to buy two <laughs> because they come in a pair. That's a part. Can I ask you a question? Sure. What do you think about the idea that you had to buy two? I was more upset that I couldn't get my coffee to go. Mm. Because they don't, they don't uh, allow, they don't have cups to go for the coffee. I asked, why not? And they said, because we prefer that you enjoy your beverage here, which I find controlling. It is also not their right to tell me where and how I should enjoy whatever it is I'm having. And I recognize these are all hugely first world concerns, right? But in a way, no. Um, because I do think that they they are metaphors for other things, for larger issues that, that we can encounter. Um, so I didn't mind the pair of donuts. And I love that I had one to share with someone if I wanted to. Mm-hmm. When you asked... For the coffee mm-hmm. to go? Mm-hmm. Do you? <laughs> this is a real question. I yeah. don't know the answer. Do you remember what the answer was? How, like, exactly? Do you remember exactly what they said? I believe they said, I'm sorry, we don't make coffee to go. Hmm. See, to me, um, that would be, that's an honest answer. And when I first asked that same question, I was told, they didn't have cups. <laughs> so they've, they've been working on that. Somebody, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Or maybe there's just a more, there's a more honest agent of the person who spoke to you as opposed to the person who spoke to me. Hmm. What have you been doing? I started a chocolate company. Um, and I've been making hot chocolate on Bleecker Street in New York City. And I've been trying to find my um, equilibrium. I yeah. Can you can you say something about that? 
You know, it's it's a uh, it's a remarkable moment in my life still. You know, like the the cyclone graphic in Wizard of Oz, where you know here's the twister and everybody is floating through it, and you know it's that. I went a long, 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 long time and journey to not land where I landed. And uh, I'm just moving into the other side of it. So when I, when I say I'm trying to find my equilibrium, I'm just still like looking around, like feeling this new like turf. And um, the lights are just coming back on. Mm. And just trying to feel who and where I and what I am now. That's the short answer. I was in the first city bakery over there on 16th Street. Yes, you were. 17th. But, 17th but Street. Yes, you were. For me, anybody who was part of that was, it's like the equivalent of someone being part of my birthstone, like touchstone. So, And I realized that I've, I've only ever known you as a person who feeds people. Hmm. What were you doing before you were feeding people? I was a television producer and director at ABC Sports. <laughs> Look at that. <laughs> Look at that. <laughs> you don't know that. I don't know that. That's so interesting. Yeah. You know, that's so interesting because I was thinking about when I read the, the notes for, for coming here. And, you know, and it says ask, you know, you, it's a conversation you can ask Helga a question. And so I started thinking about what I don't know. And um, even though what I know we know about each other and how we've existed is something that I love. Um, so I've never felt the need to, you know, what else, you know. But I grew up in Baltimore, in the suburbs of Baltimore. I was a sports crazy kid. I played the drums, jazz. So the playlist that you heard at City Bakery all those years later actually goes back to those those drum lessons. And what I wanted to do was something in, in sports broadcasting, but I didn't think I wanted to be in front of the camera, and I decided I wanted to be a producer and or director. I started working for ABC Sports as a gopher for $35 a day, and I got hired by ABC when I was a kid graduating school, came to New York. You know, the quickest path of, I, I did it, I did that for five years. You know who Howard Cosell was? I can't think about Howard Cosell without thinking about Muhammad Ali sure, sure. wanting to snatch his, his toupee yeah, from yeah, his head. Right. You worked with Howard Cosell? Howard Cosell was my one and only boss to this minute. He was a pioneer for sports broadcasting. Howard hired me, and I worked with Howard seven days a week for five years. I was very close with him, kind of a father-like situation, dynamic. When you make food, you also make community. And so talk a little bit about the community that you came from and the community that you you made, both in your life as a broadcaster and for sure in your life as, as owner of City Bakery? Such a lovely question. I mean, 
community is the great byproduct of what I created by wanting to bake. It, it is the great unforeseen beauty in, in what I did. And um, it is, I think it would be so easy to uh, talk about that in some kind of cliched way. But um, you were part of that. You you know it in its, um, you know, you know it intimately. I think that for the food world, you can be popular, you can be well-known, you can be famous, you can be whatever. And just, and because of the way you ask the question, I think there's something about being from Baltimore. You know, if you grow up a sports-crazy kid in Baltimore, you hate the Yankees. So you're, I, I would say you're an outsider because New York is like the evil empire. I've maybe thought about this in little tiny fragments, but not, no one's ever asked me the way you just asked me. But I think that there's something about being an outsider to New York that helped me create a lot of what the sum of City Bakery's parts were. I was a TV guy. I was, a, I, was a, I was in a different creative discipline. And I moved into food as an outsider. You know, I went to learn how to bake in France. I was American in France who didn't speak French. I was a baker in New York who had never baked before. I was a business owner in Union Square who had never run a business before. There was, there's a lot about being, coming to it sideways that I think led to what became the sum of City Bakery. Hmm. Did your people think you were crazy to leave? Crazy, crazy, crazy. <laughs> I didn't even have to finish crazy. the question. Crazy. <laughs> Crazy. I was called names by family members, not pretty names. Yeah. Nuts. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. And who makes up that family? Who who were those families? So the, the my mother was a nurse. My father was a furniture salesman. Um, my mother's still alive. My father died a few years ago. So lower middle class Jews in the suburbs of Baltimore. My parents, you know, worked um, as hard as they worked and as well as they worked to give myself and my two brothers, you know, every best opportunity. And what what happens is I then, I moved to New York and I get this dream job at ABC. And as the youngest in my family, you know, I'm, I'm accomplishing something that's really meaningful and then I say one day, I'm, I'm going to step over here, and um, I think I'm going to try baking. And, you know, that's an earthquake in that, in that there's a—so there's one kind of funny but just perfect, uh, I think, take on it, which is that my grandfather was a bread baker. So my grandfather came here when he was 13 from Poland, and he worked for um, a bunch of bakeries for his entire life, 
And, um, it's, you know, that was his version of, you know, the American dream. And he was a little guy, like five, one, and he was strong and stubborn. Um, so my, he had two children, my mother and my uncle. And when my uncle, who was as boastful and proud of his television producing, directing, Howard Cosell-affiliated nephew, announced that he was going to leave that to go bake. You know, he said, if your grandfather only knew that he had schlepped those bags of flowers, the flower up and down steps for 48 years. So, you know, it, it just, it was a surprise, surprise to say the least. I think for a lot of people, if they hear that kind of thing from their families, from people they love, from significant others, from their, their people, their tribe, their community. Right. It's very easy to say, okay, I won't go. The risk is so big. How is it that you feel you were still able to stick with your decision to go to Paris and learn to bake and not speaking the language and not really with any prospects of what you might do after that? So it wasn't a vacation you were on. You weren't, no. you weren't going to find yourself or to explore or just try something, take a leave of absence from work for six months and then go back. You, you were leaving your life, and in some ways, you were losing your tribe, too. Yeah, I was leaving my life for sure. You know, I, I, I thought when I worked in television that I was really good, but not great. And... I I think that my strongest sense of myself was that I was really creative. I got trapped in the sort of collaborative process of making television just enough in a negative way that I think that without even saying it to myself, part of me felt really strongly that I wanted to work on my own. I wanted to be creative on my own. You know, it, it, I, I left my world and I was, I sort of cast myself out. I didn't go there thinking I'm going to bake at all. Not at all. It was a complete, absolute revelation. I took a, a lousy six-day pastry course for fun. And, um, I, and I, I just thought, oh, my God, this is like its own world. And I thought, I'm just going to try this. Like, this is, this is its own world. So there was some liberation to that, and I went there. And, and then I turned out to be good at it. And I, I just said this to somebody the other day because I just had this. I went to Paris in 1986. And literally two weeks ago, the first time I thought about my first job in a little tiny pastry shop in the 9th arrondissement in Paris was being given 360 eggs to separate. And, <laughs> and it was me, three other people in this kitchen, 
And I, I was like this alien that dropped in like from outer space into their kitchens. It was two French guys. They were really, really good. They were, they, they spoke no English. I spoke no French. I had learned like verbs like to pour, to mix, to whisk. So my French vocabulary was existed within like a six foot radius in a pastry kitchen. That was it. I remember thinking like, oh my God, like they have no idea. Like I'm this like TV producer and director and I'm, I'm cracking these eggs and I'm wearing an apron and I'm in France and this is all so bizarre. And it was so completely just a different world. Mm -hmm. And then I just remember thinking, you know what? I think I like this. And then it turns out you can separate 360 eggs really poorly or really well. I remember that you and I started to talk specifically or or more. We started to talk more once you asked me you asked me what I did. And I told you that I was a performer and you kind of looked at me and you smiled and you said that City Bakery has some of the coolest people you don't know. And that was when we first began our rehearsals for Einstein on the Beach. And we were going to open at BAM, at the Brooklyn Academy of Music here in New York. And I had one comp. <laughs> and I said, I'm going to offer Maury my ticket because it felt like if you wanted to see in part what I do, that, that that's kind of a, a crash course. And so I gave you the ticket and you came and I want you to tell me a little bit about your experience, my being a person in your community who just kind of came in and we were always friendly, but I was silent, pretty much. Right. There's so much meaning to how that happened. And I actually, I really do, I love that you remember that I said, you know, what I said about, like, the non-famous, famous people. Because that that really is something that is one of the 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 virtues and specialness of City Bakery, so important. To me, that City Bakery sort of was anti-celebrity is important. Um, I opened a bakery that created an incredible community. And the thing that I didn't know was this unbelievable moment that when... I went to Einstein on the beach. You were one of the two people sitting in the chair when it starts, sitting on that stage. And I didn't know that. I had no idea. And that I was thunderstruck by that. I will never forget laying eyes on it being you in that chair when that when it starts. And then after that, you decided that you were going to feed me. Well, I, it, it and actually— I'm, And I'm not saying it, it was this for that or anything like but that. It, but, it, but it was something that I felt I could 
a way to say thank you. <laughs> but it was so what what's so interesting about it too was my my inability to receive it. Mm. So what what you said to me was come here and get your get your food right. for the day. Right. And I was already doing that. Right. And I had already had the experience for so many years of your food. And so imagine how crazy it was for me to go and not be able to receive mm. because I hadn't ever seen a lot of black people in City Bakery. Mm -hmm. And I was worried that I would walk in, I would have this huge thing of food, and I would be ready to leave, yeah. and that people would look at me and right. think that I was stealing. Right. Yeah. And that's also the world that we live in. Right. And so any time that I came, it was always about calling someone right. and having your manager come downstairs to meet me. And then she would walk with me over to the register and they would put the sticker on and then I would walk out. And it could all be fine that way, right. but that it had to be orchestrated yeah. because that's... You, you came and you saw me in this beast of a New York moment, which was Einstein on the beach. Right. And yet, as an African-American woman in a certain kind of establishment, I had all the paranoia and worry of an African-American person anywhere on this planet right. who is worried about the eyes that see them other than they are. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, um, so the good news is that, you know, the staff would have botched that for, you know, 100 white people too. Um, I mean, they just sucked at that. <laughs> they, just, they just sucked at that. And that was, always, that was always, believe me, there was such equal opportunity. You suck at that. We weren't, it just, it wasn't a disciplined enough regimen that, it worked. So it makes me miserable hearing you say it. But honestly, I'm here to tell you, a hundred white people, we sucked at that too. But then the question at the end of the day, or at the end of this day, shall we say, or this moment, is who feeds Maury? My last few years were so difficult. And um, trying to find a solution to just, like, nasty financial issues that were very fixable and manageable, but to have other people in the process who were either dishonest or um, they're outright, you know, terrible people. The idea of what feeds me and who feeds me, you know, I've just tried to keep my mind together and my heart together because it was a completely heartbreaking hurtful time and I, I, I've learned that I get fed by my creativity that being creative is my best sustenance you know there hasn't been a lot of money so like 
you like get thrown against a wall and what there is to spend on food and decisions and thoughts about every single every single bite i've sort of stepped out of the world of what's incredibly cool about new york if you have money to spend and um i've always eaten i mean i love good food but who feeds me right now is um still i think uh just in that process of learning who and where. So it, it's part of my finding new turf and new equilibrium and, and finding my equilibrium in every way. Part of the pain, and this was like acute pain, for the last couple of years of, of the bakery, the, and, and, and especially the last six months, was being in that space when people had no idea what was coming and what was going down. And mostly people had no idea of, I'm just going to say, the suffering that I was up against. And so I was trying to walk through that and not betray myself or the situation and be good to people who were good to me. And these were customers who cared about me and were complimentary and brought great affection and that was really compromising. That was really, really, really difficult. And I, I'm all, I'll always remember, you know, I, I, I said next to nothing to most, to nearly everybody. There were, there were just, I mean, like literally just a handful of people who I had said, you know, there's, it, it's a tough time. It's a tough time. That might have become my, it's a tough time. It's not what you think. I, I just remember seeing you on the sidewalk and um, I forget exactly what I said to you, but what I said to you was the total unvarnished truth. And I said, this thing is ending soon. And I just remember I saw you and I told you the truth right away. And I felt uh, I love that I did that. And, and, and there's great meaning in that. Uh, about you and I. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for warning me here. And that was my conversation with Maury Rubin. I'm Helga Davis. If you want more of these conversations, subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and share with a friend. You can also leave a comment. It really helps us out. Helga is produced by Crystal Hawes Dressler and myself. Our technical director, composer, and sound designer is Curtis McDonald. Lucas Krohn Grimberger is our executive producer. Special thanks to WNYC's program director, Jacqueline Zincata, and Alex Ambrose. Be sure to visit us online at wnycstudios.org slash Helga.